You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Luke. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn there now. We're going to go ahead and read verses 1 through 8. Uh, Then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, get justice for me from my adversary. But he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the son of man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? And so this parable, the parable of the woman and the unjust judge encourages us to continue steadfastly in prayer, that we not lose heart or that we won't be discouraged when we don't see immediate results from our prayers, but that we would keep asking. And so the parable goes that there was an unjust judge and this woman came and just continually asked. Perhaps you would use the word neg, you know, You know, she was the squeaky wheel that got the oil. And you know, the first time she met with this judge, the judge probably sensed a little bit of aggressiveness in this woman, you know, and perhaps as she walked out saying, you haven't seen the last of me, he realized, I haven't seen the last of her. (laughs) And the next day, as the, the previous court case was leaving the courtroom, he heard those familiar high heels, you know, He heard that familiar voice coming down the hall. He smelled that very potent, familiar perfume or whatever. And as she was coming, he knew, here we go again. And then the next day, oh, here we go again. And oh, are you kidding me? You got to be kidding me. You know, and time after time after time, her persistence paid off. And the unjust judge, which there are many of them in this world, judges rightly. And the, 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 the action of, of, you know, him being unjust, you know, fulfilling this request, and then the contrast of our Lord, who is always just, always right, always righteous, you know, loves us. When he hears us coming, doesn't think it's the sound of those high heels again, or it's the smell of that woman or that loud, obnoxious voice. But no, he loves us. He loves spending time with us. He loves it when we're in communication with him and communing with him and perhaps even supplicating or petitioning him in our, in our requests, in our prayers. He loves that. There's a few other parables that are similar to this that encourage the same thing. Flip, if you will, to Luke Chapter 11, just back, you know, about seven, seven chapters or so. Luke chapter 11, verse 5. And he said to them, which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. 
You're already thinking in your head, I know exactly the guy in my life that is that friend. <laughs> Lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, Do not trouble me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he's his friend... Yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. And so the idea there is keep asking, keep knocking, you know, keep seeking. And that door will be open. I remember... I had a friend once whose wife went out of town and uh, he, he called me, you know, at about 10 o'clock at night and said, oh, my kids just went to sleep and I just realized I don't have any diapers for them. And, uh, you know, what if, what if they have an accident in the middle of the night? Can you run down to the store and get me some diapers and then, you know, bring them over to my house? And, you know, this friend, he kind of had, uh, he kind of had an, uh, a, a, a way about him to manipulate, you know, and, and I was just like, no, <laughs> you know, it's, it's 10 o'clock at night. You've had plenty of opportunities today. Why didn't, why didn't you go get them earlier? You know, you, you should have done that. And, you know, why don't you just use a t-shirt or something, you know, just wrap her up in that. And, you know, at least you'll, that'll last you till the morning, you know? And, um, and I, you know, I was just kind of like, ah, I don't, I don't really want to, you know? good friend that I am. That, just, just learn from that. Don't ever call me and ask me to do something for you. Um, and so he kind of, you know, he's like, yeah, I suppose I could do that. And then he called me a later, little bit later. I, I don't know what t-shirt to use. And, you know, I, please, <laughs> you know, you live right by Safeway. Just go get some and bring them to me. I'll pay you back. And, uh, and you know, it's like, okay, you know, so I went and I didn't just get some diapers. I got a lot of diapers, you know, this won't happen again. You know, and I took them and gave them to him and, and, uh, never got paid back for them, but that's not the point, you know, but, but, you know, because he was persistent, uh, even though he was my friend and, you know, normally I would do anything for him. It was getting late. I was ready for bed. And, you know, back in biblical days, the whole family slept in one room and a couple knocks at the door, the baby starts stirring and just, no, you know, tomorrow, have your feast with your friend tomorrow. Don't just don't wake up my family. We just finally got to sleep. And no, I really need, you know, okay, gosh, just be quiet. Be quiet. I'll go get them for you. Just be quiet, you know? And, uh, you know, if a friend takes a little persuasion, how much more the man who died on the cross because he loves you, keep seeking, keep asking, keep knocking. You know, the unjust judge reacted in a way to a, this way to this woman he didn't even care about. How much more will the righteous judge avenge those whom he loves? And then there in Luke 11, look at verse 11. There's another, you know, kind of a little parable. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And so here, you know, the Lord is saying, if you're crying out for power, 
and for ability and for equipping and for the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So you might bring glory to me in the church, edify the body of Christ and be a light and a witness in the community. I'm not going to leave you hanging in that. And he says, earnestly desire the best spiritual gifts. So earnestly desire them. And you might not get those things the first time. But man, keep seeking, keep asking, keep knocking. Maybe you've grown weary in praying for a certain thing in your life. I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and it just hasn't happened. I've been praying for that thing. I've been praying that my mortgage would just be paid for. I've been praying that I'd be delivered from this sinful struggle, this habit, this addiction. I've been seeking, I've been praying that God might work this or that out in my life or that he would save this family member and and I'm growing weary and discouraged. I'm losing heart. I say to you today, keep seeking, keep asking, keep knocking until the Lord has released that burden in your heart to ask for those things. Keep asking for them. You know, Paul said that he had a thorn in his flesh And that three times he asked the Lord to deliver him from that thorn in the flesh. And we don't know exactly what that was, if it was a sinful struggle, you know, or if it was a a need or a physical ailment, perhaps it was an actual thorn and they didn't have tweezers back then, you know, and and, uh, I don't know, but he prayed three times. And to me, that doesn't really seem like a, a large amount of prayer request time, but three times and the Lord answered Paul. And he said to him, my grace is sufficient for you in your weakness. That was the answer to Paul's prayer. Paul, I'm allowing you to go on with this thorn in your flesh because it's causing you to seek and ask and knock. It's causing you to be weak and to rely 100% on my power and my energies and my abilities. And so sometimes that those prayers aren't answered. And sometimes the Lord, you know... Uh, He'll he'll speak into us that it's not my time yet, or that's not for you. You know, James tells us that there's times when we ask and we don't receive because we ask amiss that we might spend it on our pleasures. We ask in sin. And so don't be discouraged, but if the Lord has continued to put this burden on your heart or that person or that thing, or you just keep crying out for deliverance, keep asking. Be that squeaky wheel, always at the forefront of the Lord's heart and his mind. He knows that you're crying out to him. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 29, flip over there. We have not a parable, but an actual story of what happened with Jesus. Matthew 15, 29. Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Behold, a woman of Canaan, she was a Gentile. She came from the region, that region and cried out to him saying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon possessed. You know, there's demon possession, which is bad. And then there's severe demon possession, which is someone's crawling up the side of the wall or something like that, you know, and it was really getting bad. And so this woman finally came and cried out to the Lord. Mark's gospel said that uh, in chapter seven, verse 24 and 25, it says that uh, he, had, he had just arose and went to this region of Tyre and Sidon, and he had entered a house and wanted no one to know it but he could, so that he could be hidden. 
For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him and came and fell at his feet. So at this moment, Jesus was feeling the effects of his humanity. He was feeling tired and weary and ministry does that to you. It drains you dry and he needed some time to rest. And so he went kind of snuck into a house and was hopefully going to get a nap, you know, or some refreshment time. And here she comes and she interrupts his quiet afternoon. And this would happen a lot with Jesus. His, his rest time or his retreat time would get interrupted. And, you know, she cried out there, uh, have mercy on me, O son of David, O Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely demon possessed. And then it says that he answered her, not a word. Kind of an interesting thing to see about Jesus. He answered her, not a word. And we see here that she had called Jesus son of David, O Lord, son of David. She thought that she could talk Jesus into helping her by speaking like a Jew, by having this certain formula to her prayers or this right speech. And perhaps if he, I could fool him and make him think I wasn't a Gentile, perhaps that he'll hear me. And it's important to note, it's not how slick we are in our prayer grammar that moves God to respond, but it is our persistency in our prayer lives that causes God to respond. And this woman was trying to trick Jesus into, you know, not obviously full on trying to wholly manipulate the situation, but it's evident there. And his disciples came to him and urged him saying, send her away for she cries out after us. The disciples were getting annoyed by this persistent woman, but he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And Jesus says this with a little bit of tongue in cheek. If you could read it that way. I was not sent, but to the the sheep of Israel, you know, and he's really trying to pull something out of her. We're going to see. He's not teasing her so much, but he's urging her to keep pleading for her daughter. He's trying to draw out of her a statement of faith, allowing her struggles to draw out faith and understanding of how you come to Jesus to ask for things. And so Jesus suggested that maybe only the Jews should partake of the blessings of Jesus. And he just wanted to see how much this Gentile woman really wanted the king of the Jews. And so she came and worshiped him saying, Lord, help me. The prayer has gotten much simpler now. She worshiped Jesus now. She got real with Jesus. And this is where Jesus wanted to bring this woman. And he answered and said, It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she said, yes, Lord, but even the little dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. You know, Jesus was, was, uh, uh, I'm sorry, this woman was responding to Jesus saying, man, you know what? I'll take any blessing that you can give me. I know I'm a Gentile and they often referred to Gentiles as dogs. I, I know I'm a Gentile, but I need you, King of the Jews, and I would be happy with any little blessing that would trickle down from your throne. I need you, and my daughter needs you. And Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. You know, Jesus loves the quick wit of this woman. And how persistently and desperately she pleaded for her daughter to be healed by Jesus. 
And so if a father knows how to give good gifts to his children when they ask for them, they're not going to give him, he's not going to give them a serpent or a stone or a rock when they're hungry. If an unjust judge knows how to avenge a woman because of her persistence, so much more does our awesome, right, God, judge, father, man, know how to work things out in us who are persistently crying out to him. And then he says there in verse 8 of Luke 18, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? You know, the context of all of this is right before last week we studied uh, the second coming and the end times. You know, Jesus is saying, I'm coming soon. And when I come, am I going to find a group of people You know, a group of people that are going to be on their face seeking me, living out lives of faith, working out extreme faith, because Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that faith is substance and it's evidence of God. It's evidence of our belief in him. There's, there's, uh, there's evidence. And by that faith, elders obtained a good testimony. You can see in the lives of all of the Old Testament men and women that they believed God. And they took giant steps of faith to show that there was that belief there. And Hebrews 11, just so rich in talking about faith, it's called the hall of faith, goes on in verse 6 to say that without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, you're probably not going to go to him if you don't believe that he is in the first place, but then it goes on to say, and he's a rewarder of those who diligently Seek him diligently, persistently. It's your practice to always be falling at the feet of Jesus and praying to him. And whether that's for petition for things or supplication for somebody or through thanksgiving, he rewards you for that diligent prayer life. And so if you're discouraged today, we grow discouraged so easily you're discouraged because you've, you've come to the, the pulse, our Thursday night prayer meeting, and, and you were hoping to have something, you know, supernatural happen, some sort of healing on you or some sort of, sort of incredible experience with the Lord. You know, or you came for a healing or, you know, you've been praying for that loved one, that husband, that wife, and nothing's happened yet. Please don't lose heart. Don't get discouraged. And I'll tell you, our first pulse that we had, had about 35 people there. People were stirred for prayer. We'd examine the book of Acts. I want to be like the book of Acts. I want to continue steadfastly, fervently in prayer like the book of Acts did. Second week, 25. Third week, 15. You know, and now we've had about 17 steadfastly on and off, you know, and it's good. But I encourage you, if the reason you're not making it, we, there's times we can't make it for certain things. But if you're not making it because you're just discouraged... Don't grow discouraged. Be persistent until the Lord releases your heart from praying and asking for that thing. That men might pray and not lose heart. As we continue walking through the book of Luke, we come to verse 9, the the parable of the self-righteous Pharisee and the tax collector. Let's go ahead and read verses 9 through 14. And he spoke this parable to some who trusted in 
themselves. And you might just underline that. They trusted in themselves. That they were righteous and despised others. Here's the parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. As we read this parable, we don't inherit the shock factor that people had inherited when they originally heard this parable. As Jesus spoke it, jaws dropped, (laughs) eyes watered. Faces angered, you know, there was a a huge reaction in that. But none of us have seen a Pharisee. We've never been to the temple or had the pleasure of being acquainted with a Roman tax collector. And so perhaps this parable just doesn't quite do it for you. (laughs) Well, let me read uh, kind of a modern day version of this parable. Go ahead and sit back, kick your feet up, rub your wife's shoulder and, uh, and let me read you this version. Jack and Joe went to church one evening. Jack knew his way around. He'd been brought up in Sunday school since he was three. He knew his parents uh, were there sitting in the pew watching proudly. So he walked right up to the front, bowed his head and shut his eyes because he'd seen his dad do it and he knew that it looked holy. He carried a big leather Bible with long flowing ribbons He liked the idea of being a young man of high principles. Unlike many of his peers, he never consumed any alcohol, didn't do drugs, and was a very moral person, especially in the area of sex. No messing around behind the school bleachers for him. He and his girlfriend had intellectual conversations about vegetarianism and the nuclear issue. Instead of discos, they went to the prayer meetings at the local youth leader's house. As he sat up front in the altar, he gloated and how good it felt to be a good person. Nothing to confess. Nothing to feel ashamed about. Nothing. Good grief. It couldn't be. Out of the corner of his eye, he caught a familiar figure. It's Joe, he thought bitterly. What on earth is he doing here? He has no right to be here, that hypocrite. If he could read Joe's mind, he'd know that, if he could read Joe's mind, he'd know that's exactly the thought that Joe was thinking. What right did he have to be at church? He hadn't been there in years. In fact, he felt thoroughly uncomfortable. He kept looking around, expecting that there was someone who was going to come escort him out. He didn't really know what ritual to do. Do Christians cross themselves before praying? Or was it Muslims who did that? In the end, he slid cautiously into the back row. Oh no, there's Jack. He's seen me. I'll never live this down. He hid under the pew, trying his best to hide his face between his legs. Joe wasn't religious. 
In fact, if there was trouble in the neighborhood with the police, they usually were knocking on his front door. He smelled like cigarette smoke. His arms were scarred and and his teeth were missing from many years of drug abuse. He enjoyed a buzz from alcohol. In fact, he'd been down at the local pub just 15 minutes ago. Why am I here? He asked himself. Is it because of the fight I had at home this morning that chased me to the bottle? Or was it the sense of humiliation from Julie slapping him in the face last night, telling him in so many four-letter words to get out of her life because she found out that he was also sleeping with another girl named Carol? It was both of those things and neither of them. Somehow, as he was drinking away his sorrows at the pub, he was aware of how dirty he was and how, what a mess he had made of things. And now he was here, sitting in the back row, so aware of his guilt. Tears came to his eyes and he began to blush and a lump came to his throat. Oh God, he sighed quietly into his clenched hands. Oh God, forgive me. I tell you, it was Joe who went home a believer that night, not Jack. And so here they are, two men, two prayers, two destinies. As you look at verse 9, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they despised others. For those who were self-righteous, he told this parable, they're absolutely sure that they're fine and that their religion keeps them from needing anything from God. And Jesus wanted to stir them up from this lethargy and make them aware of the gravity of the situation that self-righteousness is. In verse 10, you read of two people. The first was the Pharisee. And we often think of Pharisee in a negative term because we know the rest of the story. We know how the Pharisees' hearts were. But really, when the crowd heard Jesus speak this parable in their minds, the listeners were thinking of the church man, a regular church attendee. A Bible student who read and knew his Bible. He had a Bible cover. He had the long ribbons. There were tags on the side of his Bible for immediate access. He had it underlined, highlighted, and diagrammed and dog-eared. He was a philanthropist. He was the first guy in the church to write a check out when there was a need in the community. He was a model of holiness. He had a religious lifestyle that was apparent to all. Praying to be seen was a hobby for him. He loved it when people said, ah, there he is. He loved the pats on the backs. Does the Pharisee's shoe fit you? Whether you're a man or a woman, don't you like it when you're referred to as holy or a fundamentalist? Don't you appreciate it when the people at school or at work notice that you don't partake of the things that the world partakes of? Don't you feel more righteous when you're patted on the back for these things? Well, there's also the tax collector. The tax collector was a thief. He was a collaborator with the Romans who got paid to wring out the Jews' wallets every penny that he could. He was given a certain quota to get and anything that he got from the people above that quota, he got to pocket and keep for himself. He was right down there with the harlots and every other disreputable person. His family was ashamed of him. The tax collectors couldn't give their alms in the synagogue. 
And in chapter 19, we read of a tax collector named Zacchaeus, the wee little man. The wee little man was he. And where's he found? Up in a tree. And why is he in that tree? Well, some of us think because he was short and he was trying to see Jesus, but it also could have been because people were chasing him and he had to run and hide in the tree. <laughs> the hound dogs were nipping at his, at his tail. These two men, the Pharisee and the tax collector, they're the two extremes of Judaism. And if I were to ask you, without you knowing the rest of the parable, which one of these men goes to heaven, you would say, well, the religious man, of course. The Pharisee went to the temple to feel good about himself. It was where he got his pats on the back. Do you go to church today to feel good about yourself? Like Stuart was praying, to check off that box that needs to be checked off for your Sunday to be complete. Do you go to church to assure yourself that you're absolutely fine? I'm absolutely fine. I went to church today, and I went to church last Sunday, and the Sunday before that. I am absolutely fine. No problems here. Well, as you look at the prayers of these men, in verse 11 and 12, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus, with himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I possess. Who was this prayer to? This prayer was to and for himself. It was so loaded with congratulations that it never made it off the runway into the ears of God. This Pharisee positioned himself and took a stand up front as close as he could possibly get to the other Pharisees to the ranking system that was there in the temple so that people would think he's extra holy. He congratulates himself and glances at God. And there's three major majors, uh, excuse me, there's, he majors in three areas of obedience here in his prayers. And you can write these down, maybe just in your margin of your Bible. We see in his prayer, negative obedience. Thank you that I am not, he prays. Thank you that I am not. He comforts himself by reminding himself of the sins that he's not committed and as we do that, this is a wonderful smokescreen to not remind us of the sin that we've committed. As the Holy Spirit is working on our hearts as we're here and we sit under the word of God and it's a sharp two-edged sword, it divides between the thoughts and the intents of the heart and it shows us what's really going on, we immediately push that conviction away and start get our eyes off of that and start thinking, well, I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't committed adultery and, you know, and, and start thinking about all those other heinous sins that we haven't done. And that makes us feel better. It's like popping the smoke, you know, the smoke grenade and tossing it out there and running past God thinking we're really sneaky and we're not getting away with things. Well, I haven't done that. And it just deceives us when the Holy Spirit is trying to work in us a heart of repentance. So that's the negative obedience. Well, I haven't done that. <laughs> Thank God that I'm not. Then we have the second major obedience, a legalistic obedience. I fast two times a week and I give a tenth. I tithe. I'm a tither. I go to the temple. Legalistic obedience is a classic method of avoiding guilt. 
You've developed an obsessive pattern that's a cover over your guilt-ridden life. You're wallowing in self-denial. You observe petty little rules that have been developed by man. And by avoiding these things, you feel better about yourself and avoid your guilt. Well, I do do this. I'm a tither and I've been given a lot of money to this church. And so that should buy me a little bit of favor from the Lord. Or I'm always at the temple. Or I fast quite regularly. And as the Holy Spirit is trying to convict you of your present state, you start throwing those things up in front of him as another sort of a smoke cloud or to cover over your sin. And then thirdly, there's the comparative obedience. I thank you that I'm not like other men. This is what you call self-justification. And the issue is not whether or not you're better than the person over here or over there or up front preaching, but rather what your life looks like before the all-seeing eye of God. Because when you stand before Him, it doesn't matter who you bring up and what they've done because it's just you standing before the righteous judge God. I thank you that I'm not like other men. I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector over here. And man, how we like to come in and point out in our hearts the other person that we know is struggling and has failed this week, and it makes us feel so much better when we're communing with the Lord. And yet Romans 12, 3 says that everyone, to everyone, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought. And if you're thinking about someone else and how you're better than them, you're disobeying that word from Paul. And he goes on to say, but rather think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. You know, we didn't save ourselves in the first place. So to come in and start gloating over how much more righteous we are than Bill or Susie over in the other rows, uh, then you're forgetting that the Lord is the one that saved you and dealt to you a measure of faith in the first place. You're no better than that other person. The devil tricks us and he tricks so many self-righteous to come and worship and to find some sort of covering so that we won't see our own very real condition before the Lord. This Pharisee here, he felt all right that day. He felt pretty good. He had a spring in his step. He was looking pretty snappy. He felt all right. But his feelings didn't reflect the condition of his soul. And do you come today, Sunday after Sunday, and feel all right? Well, what if how you feel isn't really how you are? Jeremiah tells us that the heart is deceitful, desperately wicked. Who can know it? We can't compare ourselves to somebody else and have a comparison there. But we need to compare our heart to the word of God because it's the one thing that never changes. Maybe you come in here and you feel horrible. Well, don't compare yourself and feel horrible to the person that looks awesome. Compare yourself to the word. And as you compare yourself to the world, to the word, you're going to, there's, there's freedom in that because you turn to the one who can make you righteous. You might feel all right, but your feelings don't reveal the truth. It'd be like going to the doctor 
and sitting in the, the waiting room and there's people coughing and hacking and bleeding and broken bones all in the waiting room there. And then as you go back to the, to the examination room, the doctor, doctor asks you, how are you feeling today? Oh, I'm feeling great. You know, I was driving in today and I took a big, big deep breath and no wheezing in my lungs. and That felt good. And, you know, I've, I've been digesting food well and eating a lot and I've been hearing great. And, you know, my wife made a comment as I was getting dressed and my muscles were looking pretty buff and toned. And, you know, I'm, I'm doing very well. Doctor, just hurry up and sign that bill of health so I can get out of here. And he says, well, hold on. And he gets out his tools that look beyond the surface. He gets the x-ray out and he looks deep within you or he gets the stethoscope and he examines your heart. And as he does so, he lets out that all familiar doctor noises of, mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm, you know, and uh, you're like, what? <laughs> and, uh, you know, you, he, he begins to, to do that, that pat that he does over your heart area, you know, and then kind of examines other things and then comes back to double check. What's that feeling I feel? And, and, you know, comes back again, you know, examines other things and then checks it again. And gosh, there's just something not right with this thing or with that thing. We're going to run some tests. It's probably okay, but we're just going to check. And then it comes back. Turns out you've got diabetes or high blood pressure or something like that. Something that is, it's going to kill you if it's not dealt with. And so often, you know, you try to, oh, well, no, <laughs> look at the other guys out there. And the Lord's saying, man, you might look good, but there's issues in your life that I've been trying to convict you of for a long time. And you need the great physician to heal you of these things. And so it's so sad to know that one of the great sins that's going to have claimed so many for hell in the end is that of self-righteousness. Thinking that you're righteous or right standing before the eyes of God because of your great works and service. And there's a few verses I want to take you to this morning. If you'll be a quick quick flipper in your Bible. Let's flip to Romans chapter three, verse eight. And and I do have a few slides for those of you that aren't quick flippers. Romans three, eight says, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So just being a good person, isn't going to justify you before the Lord. Romans 4, 1 through 4, what then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. And so Abraham, he wasn't justified by his works, but it says there in Genesis that he believed the Lord and it was accounted to him for righteousness. It wasn't because he was circumcised that he was justified in the sight of the Lord because circumcision didn't come for years later. It wasn't that he kept the law, the Ten Commandments that got him to heaven because the Ten Commandments didn't come for hundreds of years later through Moses. The law wasn't even a a thought in his head yet. But because he believed God, he was right standing before God. If he would have done some sort of work that would have gotten God's approval, it wouldn't be God's grace that saved Abraham, but it would have been God paying off a debt. And the word says that God is a debtor to no man. 
In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, it's one that we all know so well. For by grace you've been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. We're saved by grace, which is a free gift. The Lord's saying, here, just let me give you this free gift of salvation. Will you take it? No, I'd rather work my way so I have something to brag about before God. Well, first of all, it can't be done. Second of all, if it could be done, God's a debtor to no man. You still owe him. (laughs) Paul then goes on in Galatians chapter 2, verse 21 to say, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. So even if you could work your way to heaven, well, then why did Jesus come and become a man and die the death, the death on the cross? He wouldn't have had to. We could have just been good people the whole time, but that wasn't even possible because we can't do it. It's not possible. Jesus brought the works of the law to a much deeper level in saying, you know, if, you, uh, if you've ever lied, you know, if you've ever cheated, then you've broke the law. You broke the whole law. He says it's not just about being an adulterer. Well, I've never committed adultery, but he says, well, if you've lusted in your heart after a woman, then you've committed adultery with that woman. Or if you've ever hated somebody, then you've murdered that person in your heart. So you are an adulterer. You are a murderer. You have broken the law. And that's actually a good thing to notice and to observe. In fact, Galatians chapter 3 verse 24 tells us that the law is a teacher, or as you read there, the law was a tutor to bring us to Christ that you might be justified by faith. Because as you look at the law, you realize, okay, I have broken the commandments. I have committed adultery in my heart. I have been a murderer in my heart. I have lied in my heart. And James tells us whoever keeps the whole law, let's say you're a really good person, you keep the whole law, but you break just one of those things one time in your life. You got a little little angry and dishonored your parents. (laughs) Then you've broken the whole thing. You get one strike and then it's all out. Well, man, every one of us in this room is guilty. But the good news is Romans chapter eight, verses three through four, what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. None of us could ever keep the law. It couldn't be done. And so the Lord made a new covenant and he sent his son and his son fulfilled the law. Now, if anyone believes in his son, the Lord's righteousness has been attributed to us as our righteousness. That's an encouraging thing today as we're all made aware that we've broken the law and we're not righteous. You can fall at the feet of Jesus who kept the law. And while he knew no sin, he became sin for you. And he died on the cross so that you might become the righteousness of God through him, the word tells us. So, so grieving. Today, I hope that you set aside your self-righteousness that you think you have by your works. On any level, it is dangerous. 
And now let's look at the tax collector, what his prayer was in verse 13. The tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. This guy was poor in spirit. And Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. To be, in, to be poor in spirit is to know that I can't do it on my own. I need to, to appeal to the one who's rich in spirit. And you're blessed when you realize you can't do it on your own, but that there's one there who is rich that wants to take you under your wing and make you right in his sight. This guy knew how poor he was in spirit and he appealed to God's tender mercies and the riches of his grace. He knew that in him, no good thing dwelt. And he stood at a distance and literally said, the language is this, God, will you propitiate me? God, will you propitiate me? That word propitiate means that in the death sacrifice, there's not only the taking away of sin, but there's a diverting of the wrath of God towards sin. And as this man sat there and he knew his sin before the Lord, he knew that there was, you know, he knew that if there was nothing outside of him that could help him, then he was in deep trouble and he could never be with God in eternity. And yet as he looked there at the altar in the temple and noticed the blood stained on that altar, he said, Lord, be my sacrifice. Be my sacrifice and take away the wrath that's due to my name. There was Mr. Happy, the Pharisee, who was the magnificent church man over there in La La Land, totally fine. But this guy realized that he was totally busted. And the picture is there of, of us one day standing before God, giving an account. Are you going to be a Pharisee who's going to show God all of your amazing words and your Bible that's super highlighted and double underlined? Is that what you're going to show God? Or are you going to cry out like the tax collector and like the thief on the cross Lord, remember me when you go into your kingdom, because right now I'm just hanging on the cross. What could I possibly do that's a good work right now? Well, my friend, you can believe in the atoning work of the blood of the cross, and you can be forgiven this moment. I don't need to get a crowbar and pry you down off the cross and go and enroll you into the Boy Scouts and have you help a couple people across the street, you know, and send care packages to Africa for Christmas and then finally put you back up on the cross and then you can die and go to heaven. No, believe in me. Believe that I'm the Lord. Believe that I'm the propitiation of your sin. And verse 14 says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. That word justified, it's a legal term which speaks of the gavel slamming down in heaven, declaring you to be blameless, to be vindicated. And what a beautiful day that is when you can hear the gavel in heaven slamming down. Rory is not guilty. There's been a propitiation. There's been someone that's come and took in his place for the crimes that he's committed. And it's good in my sight 
And Rory is no longer guilty. He's innocent. And that's a beautiful thing. Like Paul tells us in Romans chapter 4, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Happy is the man whom the Lord does not impute sin. And you know, as, as David wrote that, he knew what that was like. Constantly failing, constantly struggling. David was a murderer. David was an adulterer. David was a guy who didn't know how to get out of a situation. And instead of turning to the Lord, he pretended to be you know, a madman with rabies and started foaming at the mouth. He took matters into his own hands. And yet, as we're studying 1 Kings on Wednesday night, we're seeing that David is now the standard for righteousness from which the other kings following him are to stand up to. What? David, the standard? He was a murderer. He was an adulterer. Yeah, but you know what David did every time he sinned? He fell on his face and he appealed to the tender mercies of Jesus. He knew he was a sinner and he cried out like this tax collector every time, Lord, help me. Listen to his prayer after he was caught in adultery and murder with Bathsheba. Listen to his prayer. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my sin. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and, my sin, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones that you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. And it goes on in that manner. A heart of repentance. A heart that says, Lord, be my propitiation. Lord, forgive me. Blot out my sin. And so there's a crucial question for us today. When you stand before God on that day, are you going to rely on the atoning blood of Jesus Christ or are you going to rely upon your works and your righteousness, your reputation or your moral achievements, the number of times that you attended church or the number of good deeds that you've done? Have you ever asked God to pardon you through the atoning blood of Jesus? You might be a good person. You might be a great person. You might be a sincere person. But today, you're sincerely wrong and you're dead in your sins. But the good news is you don't have to leave that way today. You can just believe on the Lord Jesus and repent of your sins and say, Lord, I see what you see in me and I confess these things to you and I ask you to take them away and I ask you to take off this robe of black and to clothe me in a robe of white. Isaiah says, come, let us reason together here today. 
Though your sins are like scarlet, I want to make you as white as snow. Will you be a reasonable person here today? Will you realize that your sin or that your works are not going to get you to heaven? There's only one way, and that's through the atoning work that Jesus has done on the cross. If you're found guilty today, even now as the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, don't overlay it with religious observances. But today, open up your heart and get real before the Lord. Today, the doctor is telling you that everything is not okay, despite how you feel. The word of God is telling you it's not okay. But today, I'm pleading with you and the Holy Spirit is pleading with you to be where the tax man was. To stand where he stood, to bow as he bowed, to look where he looked. He looked away from himself and he looked to the altar of God. Have you ever done this? Have you ever been acquitted and set free? If not, today there's rest for your weary souls. And you don't have to rely on yourself anymore. I'll tell you, I don't want to rely on myself. Even as a pastor, even as a Christian, even as a man of God, who strives for holiness, I fail so miserably. I can't do it on my own. And so I appeal to the one who did do it and made a way for us to stand before him and to go to heaven on that day. We're going to go ahead and have the worship team come up and you can set your Bibles away, out of the way. And Lord, I pray that right now you would search our hearts. Lord, do that scan that a physician would do and show us our sin in the inner man. Show us our real and true state. Lord, where we've been lying to ourselves and saying everything's okay, Lord, will you show us where everything is not okay? And Lord, I just plead with you that if there's anyone in this room that's relying on themselves, for righteousness, for right standingness before you. That, Lord, you'd help them today to to lay all that down before you and to look to the altar where you were a sacrifice for our sins and to receive that free work that you worked for us. Lord, you didn't have to die. You were completely innocent in the matter. We could have each just been accountable for our own sins and all gone to hell. But Lord, you loved us too much. You knew we couldn't do it. And so you came and you made that way available. That if anyone would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, they could be saved. And I want to ask you this morning, If that's you, you're the one who's been relying on your works and being a good person. I want you to be very real with yourself today. I want you to be very real and open with God. If you think it's because your own works and that's the way you've been living is is self-righteously. But today you're confronted 
You're confronted with the mercy and the forgiveness and the grace, the free gift of salvation in Jesus. And you would say today, Lord, help me. I'm such a sinner. I'm so poor in spirit, Lord. I need help. I appeal to you. I appeal to the blood of the cross. I appeal to you to be a propitiation for my sin and for you to turn the wrath of God away from me. I can't do it. I want you to do it. And if that's you this morning, I'm going to ask you to respond to the Lord today by lifting up your hand and saying, Lord, that's me. I appeal to your tender mercies. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Lord, don't push me away from your presence. Bring me into your presence. Clothe me in that white robe of righteousness that Rory was talking about. Isaiah tells us that our righteous works are like filthy rags in comparison to God's righteousness. A white robe he wants to clothe you in this morning. I plead with you this morning to respond to the word of God and to don't, not leave this place still going to hell, stuck in your self-righteousness, dead in your sins. But to humble yourself and say, Lord, I'm poor in spirit. Help me. Be the propitiation for my sins. Is there anybody here today? You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County or to contribute to this ministry, check out our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com or you may write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Thank you for listening and God bless.